No. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're better. <laughs> I don't have the Jake Siegel gravitas. All right. <laughs> it's true. You're right. You don't. <laughs> I, I acknowledge that. All right. Tell me when. Uh... Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey. My co-host, Phil Cly, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Adam Kamara and Alex Brooklyn of Racket Media. And me, the knocker-off of Tall Hats, the slumming angel, the omni-American, Jacob Siegel. May you continue to be a person. All right. We, uh... We are at episode 20. We've been doing this for almost two years, and uh, I, I, I think we have continued to be people. We've uh, done our best, at least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we decided we were going to do something a little bit different for this episode. We've been really heartened by the response we've had from listeners. I think we were initially just heartened that we had any listeners at all. It's a very odd project, and we were not necessarily um, – <laughs> expecting uh, to garner the listenership we have. And so we thought that we would uh, do this episode, opening it up to questions from our listeners. Um, so shall we just kick this off, Jake? Yeah, maybe let's say a quick word first about where we are uh, planning to go in the future, and we'll mm-hmm. return to that at the end of this. But one thing we definitely want to do in the near term is set up a Patreon page because we want to be able to pay the people who've done a lot of work for us, like Alex and Adam at Racket Media. And we also, you know, we want to be able to do um, other, maybe more ambitious things with this. And finally, um, you know, we want to make some dough off this ourselves, if that's possible. <laughs> well, this has been a money-losing proposition. <laughs> right. So we, we have, Enterprise. We've put a lot of yeah. time into this, and we've really and we'll, enjoyed we'll, it. We'll try and... Uh, uh, come up with things that um, you know uh, that our listeners might want. Uh, I think uh, you know we could have Jake record a, a cover album of Boys to Men songs. I think that would be worth. I sang a Boys to Men song at um, my Andres Huddy Junior High School IS two forty six. We did um, End of the Road for like. Not even junior high school graduation, but seventh grade to eighth grade, whatever you even call that. Yeah. Was, was your voice exactly the same in seventh grade? No. <laughs> Alex, is, yeah, Alex, Alex is, is saying Alex yes. Alex is saying yes. No, he it, sounded exactly like this. It probably started in more like ten, ninth <laughs> or tenth grade. But uh, that was the year that I almost failed out of public junior high school in Brooklyn, which is not easy to do, let me tell you. Two consecutive years, I almost I got suspended twice that year, once for getting into a fight where my disciplinary action that the school took was to take me and the kid I got into the fight with and give us both in-school suspension. So we had to report every day to a classroom in the basement known as the dungeon where a substitute teacher who did nothing but read gun magazines all day ignored us and we <laughs> menaced each other from across the room. And we were, the whole week was just like, yo, when I get my hands on you and then towards the end of the week when we went to lunch, 
all of Jansport backpacks were the hot thing in New York <laughs> at the time. All of our Jansport backpacks got stolen. And then me and this kid, Naeem, who I had gotten into the fight with, were like, we'll join forces now <laughs> to go find the kids. <laughs> so we never ended up fighting again. Uh, but we also never got our backpacks back. <laughs> it wasn't just fighting. That's the one that makes me look cooler. That was also the year I got suspended from junior high school for uh, wearing a skirt to school on St. Patrick's Day. That was supposed to be a kilt, but was actually just Jody Pizark's plaid skirt. <laughs> and uh, me and my friend, uh, who was Irish, and so maybe had a little bit more of a legitimate basis for wearing a kilt to school. But we both did it as a lark, but he very wisely took his off when the um, assistant principal said, you can't walk around the hallways like that. You know, this is absolutely going to get cut from this. No, there's I, I no way. We're not, we're not cutting this all right, at all. Let, let's go. So I, I right. both got into a fight. I want to – let me stress the fight that I got into. <laughs> uh, but I also I also wore a skirt to school and I want to stress that as well. So I'm a balanced individual. Okay. All right. So first question from Davis Thompson. What inspired the two of you to create this podcast and how did you come up with the format of a manifesto plus a work of art? So um, Jake and I have known each other since 2009, right? Eight. No, because no, I was still yeah, in the Marine Corps right. in 2009. Uh, yeah, so I came back to New York uh, and we were part of a kind of writers group run by NYU um, with a bunch of folks uh, that were in it. Matt Gallagher, Royce Granton, Maurice, Maurice DeCall, um, Perry, Perry O'Brien. Yeah, uh, good good group of folks. Um, and Mariette Kellenowski. Mariette, yeah. Um, so a lot of sort of interesting vet writers uh, who are still writing. And I don't know, just uh, – I have always found when I'm writing uh, – you know, I'm, I'm somebody who likes to argue ideas out and uh, try and work my way through the sorts of things that are important to me that I want to put into my fiction or my nonfiction – uh, over conversations, right? And so, you know, Jake is one of those people who I've always enjoyed arguing things over with or talking things over with because he's a big weirdo and also, you know, a big reader and just sort of has a sort of interesting perspective. Is not a is not a herd animal in any way, uh, which is always useful. Somebody who you know challenges my 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 preconceptions and makes me think about. Um, you know what's underlying some of the ideas that I'm I'm working with, or some of the sort of blind corners around my thought. And so, you know, we wanted to force ourselves to, you know, meet regularly to do this because as our lives got busier and busier, it was just easier and easier to put things off. And we sort of figured, all right, we have a podcast. We'll meet up. We'll force ourselves to not just talk these ideas over, but also because we're going to be putting it out for the public in the interest of not humiliating ourselves. Uh, we'll put just enough work into it to not look like total morons. Um, and as far as the manifesto plus work of art, I think you wanted to do manifestos, Jake. And I was like, I, I want to do, you know, my, for me, fiction, I don't necessarily distinguish fiction from nonfiction in terms of it being art, but like, 
gearing towards art is what the ideas work is 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 about you know for me and i also think that like you know the ideas sometimes can be the skeleton right of something but then you have to like put flesh and bone you know flesh on on top of those bones and muscle on top of those bones and um and then you know what you end up with you know turns out to be a radically different beast and i think that that contrast is always useful uh and so it was important to me that we if we're going to be talking you know about something more sort of philosophical or analytical that we'd be pairing that with something that tapped into something a little bit wilder you know writing for me is a both a solitary and a despotic (laughs) enterprise you know like i'm i'm the master over what i write uh, and it's a tremendous power and uh, that tremendous, power and a crippling power and a very, very isolating power. And I understand that there are other people. Our friend Maurice, for instance, I don't think feels that way. And, you know, he's drifted into writing plays in part because it's a more social enterprise. That's much more difficult for me. Um, you know, I, I want to exert like a totalitarian level of control and that's it's not just isolating it it also can make it hard to build to that because Mm -hmm. you know the thing itself it's like a fortress um and so this was a way to sort of work some of these ideas out without you know pontificating which is so easy for me to do (laughs) and one of the things this is i know we want to move on to the next question it's very easy for me to just riff and extemporize and um, I enjoy that greatly and it's something I feel, you know, is is what drinking was made for. You know, Alex, <laughs> who's sitting across from us now, Alex uh, interviewed Jonathan Lethem a couple of months ago and Lethem is probably my favorite living novelist and she had a great line and it was sort of the the theme of the night, which is that New York is just one big conversation. You know, or that's what New York should be at its best. You know, it's just like this throbbing, coursing, electric conversation. And you're in the current or you're not in the current. And if you're not in the current, what the hell are you doing here? You know, move somewhere else. And I love being in that conversation, but it makes it easy to say things I don't necessarily agree with <laughs> 10 minutes later, you know, cause you're trying things out. This was a way for us to try things out. Yeah. And that was both fun and I think, uh, productive. Would be wrong or you know, first. So, so, you know, and this is going to be related to the next question that we have, which is what is, what in the hell are the two, are you two up to in this podcast? You're clearly up to something. Is it a future project of some kind? And I think, Probably for both of us, certainly for me, it's the writing that emerges out of this. Both, you know, I have a novel coming out, Missionaries, in October. And Who's that coming out with? Them? Penguin Press. And um, if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you might see some of the things, um, sort of things that are being played with um, that are sort of similar to some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast. An easy example of that would be I had a piece in the New York Times uh, in November called The Soldiers We Leave Behind, right? And it's a phenomenal piece. Thank you. Um, it talks about two Iraqi interpreters who work with U.S. forces and interweaves their stories with Charles White Whittlesey, who we talked about in our podcast on patriotism and Alistair McIntyre. If you listen to that and then read the piece, I'm very clearly dealing with 
Whittlesey in a different way, right? Um, but I'm engaging with all of the ideas that we talked about in that podcast and that was sort of like the the launch to get me thinking about something so that I could ultimately write about, you know, write that piece in a, in a richer way, right? Um, and there's been a variety of pieces, a piece that I wrote for America Magazine, for example, that, that you know, some of the things came directly out of, out of our discussion. Um, I wrote a piece on World War I literature where afterwards uh, Jake read it and was like, did you write this after our podcast on the um, uh, the Dadaists? <laughs> and I was like, I wrote half of it, and then I finished it after our podcast on the yeah. on the Dadaists, and it was influenced by the conversation. So it's been very productive for me. Yeah, I would say the same. Um, that's what we're after is just an attempt to air these ideas out and, and figure things out for ourselves and for others. And if you look at uh, Phil's piece in the New York Times Magazine, that in some ways you know grew out of this conversation we had about patriotism and Alistair McIntyre, the the format of that piece or the, the scope of that piece, I mean, so it's an ambitious scope and it's the, the narrative structure, uh, elaborate is the wrong word, but it's a... Structure was the hardest piece of that. It was a hell of a piece to put it's, together. It's, it's brilliantly structured, but it's not, it's not a three-part polemical argument, right? And... To get from the blank page to that is difficult and can be, you know, agonizing. I don't want to make too much of that, but it ain't easy. And this, this is a way to to get to that. Yep. And in getting to that, you're producing, I think, ultimately, like the the testament. But this is not unimportant in that process. It's also a way to connect with people, which is yeah. enjoyable. The uh, okay. Oh no, no, hold on. We should say who the asker, who are the question asker. This is so. These are all from Davis Thompson. We have ah. a bunch, but he had a, a good string of okay. questions to open us up. And this is: Would you say your podcast is mostly about politics, mostly about art, or mostly about how politics and art interact? Or would you describe your podcast as about something else entirely? I would say about something else entirely. Um, no, this is about how people come to believe the things they believe about yeah. the world, which is ultimately what I'm always interested in. It's about the nature of belief and the relationship between belief and action and and consequence and how much control we have over our own beliefs and how much control we have through our beliefs over what we manifest in the world, why we believe the things we believe, how it is that our ability to believe and you know we don't have an infinite capacity for belief we can't always recognize the limits that are placed on what we can and can't believe in you know not can't in the sense that it's prohibited necessarily but in the sense that it's circumscribed by our own you know the the sort of limits of our own imagination and um that that to me is what it's about and I guess in a more historical sense, it's also about the way in which – you know, this relates to something that um, – I don't know his real name. Scholar's Stage is the guy on yeah. Twitter who mm-hmm. – he wrote uh, – you know, he's written some very complimentary things which we appreciate. But he made a point a few months ago about how, um, you know, we – I think like we're very erudite but he's – not into all the modern stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I should say, first of all, the point is not to be erudite, right? right? For me, 
Um, we both read a lot. I'm not, you know, nobody's trying to come off like a naive here. Um, but the, the point is to try and think these things through and have a conversation about them. Yeah. And which for me includes gathering up various conversations that other people have had in the past. Right. right. So, you know, when to go back to the finished product with the finished product, uh, a lot of that, those, kind of references gets sort of cut out you know um i don't but but you know sometimes there'll just be like a, a series of quotations that i'm working through or i'm trying to look at the ways different people have positioned themselves in an argument about the same thing or or um that's helpful and that's why i think there's a kind of like ping-ponging between different like writers and artists that we often do on this this podcast because it's in an early stage and we're right. just trying to kind of gather up ideas about whatever it is that we're sort of trying to put our arms around but the other thing is that would uh scholar stage was i think what he had inferred was that we were doing these modernist manifestos because that's what we were so interested in but this is this is not an aesthetic endorsement the manifesto is a modern form and part of what we're doing here is wrestling with why that is and what that form entails and what it what it requires and what it transfers onto the world you know the there's a reason why modernity produces the manifesto in a way that the classical world does not and if there's an aridness to that then that's an aridness in modernity itself and our choice to focus on which, that is an we, interrogation, not an endorsement. Which we might be sympathetic to in some of its uh, – Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so the other thing is I would say about that like I am wary of resting too much on the political in general. You know, um, I was thinking about uh, – Jacques Ellul, right, um, wrote a book after World War II which – you know, he was a Christian writer and asking, you know, in what way are Christians to be present in the modern world, right? And he thought that this had been forced upon him and other Christians by the war and then by the post-war sort of, you know, rebuilding. Uh, uh, and he said, you know, he talks about sort of, you know, on the one side are those for whom the most important thing was to return to theology, building up the church. On the other, those who had a passion for politics and no longer thought about anything else. Uh, and for Alul, he didn't think any of these was sort of the most important thing. Uh, Christians of the church could not hold themselves aloof from human beings, but neither could they become assimilated into one of the political currents. And what he thought was uh, Christians participate truly in the world's preservation not by acting like others and laboring at the world's technical technical task, but by fulfilling their specific role, which he felt most simply was prayer. Now, this might sound like a weird and passive quietist take on what Christians were supposed to do during World War II. And it would be easy to see that from anybody but Jacques Ellul, who in 1940 openly renounced Nazism, lost his job as a professor because of it, um, went out into the countryside living off the land, was active in the resistance. Um, you know, uh, his home became a safe place for members of the resistance, uh, French Jews. He hid Jews, helped them acquire forged papers, took them to safety. Uh, uh, Vad Yashem has named him one of the righteous among nations. And his point is not that your first duty is to prayer um, because that's the only thing that matters and you don't need to then do all these other things, but that it is too easy to get caught up in the material aspects of the world um, 
and sort of lose that center that is somewhat aloof, mm-hmm. right? Um, that sort of core that nourishes one and allows you to then go. And he says, materially triumphant, we are spiritually vanquished, right? Yeah. And I think you can you can see, you know, it's, it's very obvious in sort of the more grotesque forms of the Christian right right now and the sort of back backflip contortions that they've done, the way in which um, not maintaining that sort of a certain degree of separation, the not a monkish separation, right, um, where your primary core is not necessarily in the political is essential even if you're going to be a good political actor, let alone – you know, sort of all the other aspects of, of, of you know, what no, it is to be a human. That's an essential point though, right, yeah. is that it's in order to be a good political actor, it's not in a – it's not a monkish renunciation of politics, yeah. which is a delusion, right, because it's impossible because right. politics is just the word for how human beings organize themselves in a society. It's not that. It's a understanding that uh, a, a – Politics that tries to take over every other domain of human existence or presumes itself to be the lord over every other domain of human existence quickly becomes not only tyrannical but, you know, uh, perverse in its effect on how people perceive their own lives. Yeah. 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 All right. And then finally, who do you see as your audience for this podcast? Yeah, I have no idea. Or I had no idea. I had no idea, but now, you know, now I do have an idea. You're right. Yeah, you're right. And it's been, as, as I mentioned, like we really enjoyed interacting with folks. Um, and we're gonna later meet up with somebody who we met, I think, because they listened to this podcast. And we, uh, that sounds right. Yeah, Ian yeah. Corbin. Who's, yeah. Well, so he he had yeah. mentioned like the podcast, and then I started reading his stuff and was Very blown good away. Yeah. yeah, highly recommend his his piece on. He's got Blue. a good piece in a Washington Examiner. On the the real digital divide, uh, where Park McDougald, who's been a guest, is the editor of the back of the book over there. He's been doing a hell of a job. And um, yeah, but listen, so the, there is a kind of – there is a one kind of listener, which is maybe somebody in the uh, – you know, how shall you put it? Uh, religious post – secular humanist camp, something like that, sympathetic to religion, if not practicing religious post-secular humanist, which is not to say illiberal or anti-liberal, but um, looking for for a way of living that, you know, has – admits of the the failures of um, like rational – determinism taken to account of extreme, something like that. At the same time, you know, I think um, we have a bunch of people in a kind of libertarian uh, yeah. space. And then – We have some socialist listeners. Some socialist listeners and uh, some, you know, sort of Mark Fisher, yeah. I would say. So I would say we want to do – we want to get some like – Hardcore socialists on the show. Yeah, um, come on. Actually, well, Matt, Matt Sitman, uh, 
who's one of the co-hosts of the the excellent Know Your Enemy podcast, did did in response to our call for questions, ask when we're going to have a, a crossover episode. So. Anytime, man, Matt, um, you should come on. What's Matt? Uh, Matt's co-host is um, Sam Allerville. Yes, yeah, yeah. Also Sam Allerville. Is really Matt a Matt a socialist? What do you say? Is he a social democrat? Or, he's he's like the hardest for Bernie guy on Twitter. That, that doesn't mean he's a socialist, though. But uh, without getting too deep into those sorts of yeah. splitting questions, <laughs> definitely some of those, some sort of Mark Fisher, like, uh, you know, that sort of um, kind of socialism. Alex is saying, move on to the next question. No, no. I was like, yeah, like, I like Mark Fisher. <laughs> oh, you do like Mark Fisher. Yeah, yeah. I love Mark Fisher. Yeah, exactly. Um, I... Well, so this, anyway, this, is a, recently, this is a good bridge actually. to a question yeah. from Zahi Kakish. Yeah. Um, uh, what is your guys' take on leftism in America today? Seems very fragmented in interests. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> very, very fragmented, though. Look, I hope Bernie wins the nomination. Mm-hmm. I think if uh, Warren had run a different campaign, I think Warren is by far the smartest out of the Democratic candidates. Smarter than Andrew Yang, smarter – smarter than joe biden um you know i think warren has like uh the most impressive command of economic policy and and uh, the compliments you give yeah i think she's the one with the the most impressive command of uh the economic space and the Mm -hmm. ability to shape policy i don't like the campaign she's run at all um, and I, I much prefer the campaign Bernie's run, even if I think Bernie doesn't have the brain power or policy expertise. I think that a Bernie Trump election would be hygienic and good for America in a way that the only other person I would say that about is maybe an Andrew Yang mm-hmm. Trump election. I, ultimately, I prefer Yang's suite of policies, which I've written about before. But it's a very I, good piece in tablet. Thank you. But I like uh, I like the idea of a Bernie Trump runoff. I think it would be hygienic and clarifying in a way that you know a Biden Trump race would be the sort of the opposite of that. Um, but that I, I doesn't answer yeah, the question. I think the, the the fragmentation. I mean, like obviously we're in a sort of you know both on the left and the right there are these sort of shifts going on. I think that's you know, sort of both worrying and hopeful, right? So I think it's a it's an interesting, exciting time. Um, and then the, the following question from Zahi is, with Jacob's work following alt-right groups like the guy who prints guns, do you think they are doing better vision-wise? I think right? that the right has a uh, – particularly the kind of techno-futurist right that somebody like Cody Wilson fits into has a – more of a command of political economy in some ways than the left does right now. So even the appeal of Bernie Sanders, in my opinion, is inseparable from a a quality of nostalgia that is not present in the sort of techno-futurist right. And I don't think that that's uh, necessarily a bad thing, especially in the short come, but it's limiting. What I mean by that is part of what makes Bernie appealing – is that he speaks in analog terms in a digital world. And that means that when it comes to the financial economy, for instance, he doesn't fall back on the idea that it's so abstract and complex that 
simpleton voters could never possibly understand it. And therefore, if it crashes or smashes on their heads or cuts their wages out from under them or sends job over, jobs overseas, that's merely a function of the high-level math involved in an ever-increasing GDP, right? Bernie says something much closer to the opposite, which is, in fact, you should get a return on your work. That return should be explicable. It should go up. The government should take the wealth in this country and uh, redistribute it into worthy social services and also into rising wages. Now, whether or not this translates into practical policies, I think sometimes it does, probably more often it doesn't. It's deeply appealing and it it's appealing in the same way that Bernie's avuncular quality is appealing. He seems honest. And I think that there are reasons for that. I think he is more honest than a lot of the political actors today. He is more straightforward. And that's deeply appealing. But it's also rooted in a kind of nostalgia that I think uh, has real limits. And I, I this is why I prefer ultimately, let's say, Warren's sort of left-wing economic vision to Bernie's, though I much prefer Bernie to Warren. I think Warren has more of a, uh, an understanding of what would be required to tame and reshape the the monopolistic uh, tendencies of the modern economy, so that it was you know more beneficial to the greater number of Americans. Um, I, and let me just say one more thing about the first part of that question in terms of the, you know the sort of fracturing of the left. The left's in a difficult position right now, in part because. What what kind of left is there going to be in America without a industrial worker base? Without a, uh, a, a and for that matter, without a, a kind of striving uh, lower middle class, working class, organized around union jobs or jobs that can be organized. You still have a public sector that's organized into unions, but the private sector. It's a much longer story than we can get into right now. But the question is, who's the subject of the left at this point? And the DSA is, you know, the DSA is not organized itself and it does not reflect, I think, a prioritization. The DSA being sort of the leading left-left rather than progressive or liberal left organization in America right now has not organized itself in a way that suggests it has a real path forward um, along those lines. But this is – these are massive shifts in the political economy that have disrupted the old um, – disrupted the, what the left means yeah. at this point. And then the final question from Sahih is who is the most profound manifesto or ideas this decade? Uh, well, I don't know. Christopher Lash? No, of this decade. <laughs> no. Oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, Lash, if I could put Lash on the list, he'd certainly be Whoever there. decided to reissue Lash, if that happened. Um, I think that Mark Fisher's uh, capitalist realism is profound. Um, you know, I, I like Fisher a lot. I think that uh, – who else would I put on that list? I'm thinking for a second here. Um, uh, Zadie Smith had a – Zadie Smith is – I mean she's just a brilliant – She had that essay about hyper-realism. Where mm -hmm. was that? In the London Review of Books? 
Well, no, the hyperrealism was attacking Zadie Smith. So that no, was... no, no. She had her own. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith's criticism over the past ten years brilliant. is brilliant, and are the the most sort of shapely and advanced literary manifestos in the last decade. When we talked about the essay and and talked about how like it was like being in close conversation with somebody, I mean she masters that as a form better than anybody else that I can think of who's writing right now. I have to read more of her novels. I I have only read White Teeth and I – my sense of her is that in my mind this very she occupies as critic and essayist. Not novelist, but I've got to read more of her novels. Maybe maybe we should do one of her novels yeah. on, on, on here. OK. Uh, my wife asks, when are you going to do an episode on aging and the role of the elderly in our society? Some people have asked about child rearing, but I'm more interested in how you structure a society and the values it holds so that there's a space for children, working mothers, and the elderly in a way that doesn't see them as a drag, as less productive or a burden. I love this question and um, I don't just say that because – Jessica Alvarez, hi Jess, is the one who <laughs> asked it. Uh, I love this question because I've been thinking about it a lot myself. And maybe we should throw to the audience if there if there's works uh, or, idea. or ideas or manifestos that, that would be related to that. Uh, I'm going to tease an essay I have forthcoming. Um, I think about seventy percent of the essays. No, probably 50 percent of the essays I've teased in the past have actually seen publication at some point. But mm-hmm. I'm confident this one will. And the title I have right now is Be Not Kid Worshippers. <laughs> and um, it's about what happens to a society that uh, worships youth. But it deals with this question. But, yeah, if anybody out there has something we should read or consider that might help us to uh, address the questions Jessica asks, I- I'd be very interested. All right. Jonathan Yeager, what would be in the manifestos of our two hosts, hosts of the podcast, not implying the listeners are parasites living inside you, but not not implying that? So this is the the all relative. The, Jonathan Yeager is my brother-in-law. What's up, Jonathan? Um, good question. I don't know. I would say some combination of the Frank O'Hara manifesto, the Zamyatin entropy manifesto. And the Billy Childish manifesto. Uh, Alex is rolling her eyes at Billy Childish, but probably <laughs> some combination of those three. You, 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 you can go and listen to the Stuckus uh, episode to get uh, our our crack producers' uh, feelings about Billy Childish in full. Not in know. full, but I don't know, in part. In maybe as much as you can take in one sitting. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't write a manifesto is probably the shorter and more direct answer. I would have written one 10 years ago. I wouldn't write one now. I, I do have to say Alex slapping you down at various points was one of my favorite podcast People moments. People in general seem to yeah, really they, enjoy that. They were big fans. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so we have uh, Jack uh, Perkis. Perks? Uh, we're not good at pronunciations. Uh uh, I believe you're both veterans. I'm very interested in what you think of the material released by The Post. Quite a bit of it seems to have relevance to the themes discussed. Oh, I should say my manifesto uh, would be is, – is the novel, right? You know, yeah, uh, right. I have a novel coming out and that would be – to the extent that I would be willing to write a manifesto, it would, it would emerge in fictional form. And so that's – you know. Except that that's by definition antithetical to the manifesto, right? I mean yeah. you wouldn't write – you wrote a novel because you – you didn't want to write a manifesto. Yeah. You wanted to write a novel. Exactly. 
Uh, okay, so the the material released by the Post would be the Afghanistan papers about how we've been lied to. Um, yeah. Uh, well, not just lied to the the Afghanistan papers or this disclosure, most of which revolved around uh, the work of SIGAR, which is the Inspector General uh, group started as the sort of inspector general auditing agency, government auditing agency for U.S. government, all U.S. government, uh, State Department, military, everything in Afghanistan. That wasn't the only material in the papers, but that was a lot of it. And what it showed essentially was that not just the massive corruption, fraud and waste that had been going on in Afghanistan uh, almost since the start of the war, but also that High-level U.S. officials um, discussed openly uh, both the inability to make progress along the lines proposed for victory in Afghanistan and also the fudging of progress, the manipulation of metrics. Look, I wrote something for Medium about this. I have a longer piece coming out in – I believe it will be in the spring or summer issue of American Affairs about this. But, uh, you know, what I think is that the first thing I think is that we should get the hell out of Afghanistan, um, that there's no reason for the American military to be in Afghanistan anymore. That's been true for a long time. And that the and that the the fact that we have been in Afghanistan for two decades without the ability to define victory or any clear sense of the relationship post, let's say, 2004, 2005, without any clear well, sense well, of the relationship. Even what our interests would be commensurate with the what we're putting into it. That's right. That tells you something about America. Uh, more than, That tells you something about a very, very deep dysfunction, a very deep rot yeah. in the heart of American society right now that – and the, the politi- simplest it's a political way, problem. Right? It's a political problem, but yeah. the simplest shorthand for it is that we're an empire. We have been for some time. Afghanistan is a kind of imperial proposition. Uh, we don't want to be an empire. We don't want to think of ourselves as an empire, which doesn't mean that we're not an empire. It just means that we're a schizophrenic and ineffective empire. And um, I don't even remember what the question is, frankly – what was it? It was about the Pentagon Papers and – I mean I, yeah. how it relates to this um, – yeah, I, I echo what Jake said. I, I have a piece for the Washington Post called We Have No Idea What We're Doing in Iraq. We Didn't Before We Killed Soleimani, which sort of ends with the political part of that equation, right? So oftentimes when you critique um, what we're doing in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, people will say, well, you know, what's your – you know, what's your plan? What's your policy for the moment? And, and I can usually sort of talk about what I would do in, in specific instances different from what the administration uh, is doing. But I think that given the way that we wage war now and the limited oversight, we wage war in a way that is designed to ensure that we have no policy. Now, if we had more congressional oversight, if we had more regular debate, that doesn't mean we would get a good policy. But we might get a policy, right, which would be a nice place to start. Um, and so, yeah. 
She get out of Iraq also, in my opinion. The Santiago Ramos, Beatles or Stones? Beatles and Ramones. <laughs> I'll go with the Beatles. Um, they're probably individual songs from the Stones I like more, but I think I could probably listen to the Beatles more. I'm not like a huge on either of the guys. The, the question I thought would be more interesting to ask you, Jake, is Towns Van Sant, Two Girls, or Time by Tom Waits? Well, the clouds didn't look like cotton. They didn't even look like clouds. I was underneath the weather. All my friends look like a crowd. Well, the swimming hole was full of rum, and I tried to find out why. All I learned was this, my friends. You got to swim before you fly. I got two girls. One's in heaven, one's below. One I love with all my heart. And one I do not know. That is uh, my favorite Towns of Hanzant song. So as much as I love time. Um, that song is really good. East of East St. Louis and the wind is making speeches. Time is really good too. Yeah. And the rain sounds like a round of applause. Two of, two of my favorite songs. Uh, Santiago's got exceptional taste. But, well, yeah. Uh, one of his other questions is, will Phil Clyde give OK Computer another chance? Um Sure. No, I didn't say it was a bad album. Yeah. I just said, you know, at the time that I was listening, I got so much crap for that. At the time I was listening to it, not having had a lot of sleep with like whiny children, they're better now. They're sleeping better now, thankfully. Um, <laughs> it was maybe not, yeah, not the right moment to listen to. Well, our friend Jake Hanrahan yeah. is the one who really couldn't stand OK Computer, and you know, we dragged him in. There's some whole British. Um, like the English have a whole thing where the bands you listen to tell you whether you're like a middle class art student or a tough council estate guy who works, does honest work for a living. And apparently Radiohead is directly implicated in that that class question. So we dragged Jake into that and I saw him getting – he had to like fend off questions from uh, angry British Twitter users about how dare he support Radiohead for like months after that. <laughs> He's doing all right. Jake can take care of himself. What's Mailer's best 60s book? Uh, that's a good question. Hold on. I have to look up which ones were written in the 60s. I'm not uh, – Armies of the Night uh, – Was at the end of the 60s. The right? I would say that um, Mailer's finest work is what he looked like in the 1950s. Mailer's finest work is getting beat up by Rip Torn. <laughs> and if you haven't seen Mailer getting smashed in the head with a hammer by Rip Torn, stop whatever you're doing. This podcast is not nearly as important as you going to YouTube right now and watching Norman Mailer get smashed in the head with a hammer by Rip Torn. <laughs> if uh, this is a letter he once wrote to William Styron, Bill, I've been told by a reliable source closer to you than one might expect, that you have been passing a few atrocious remarks about Adele. Normally I would hesitate to believe the story, but my memory of slanderous remarks you've made about other women leaves me not at all in doubt. So I tell you this, Billy boy, you've got to learn to keep your mouth shut about my wife, for if you do not, and I hear of it again, I will invite you to a fight in which I expect to stomp out of you a fat amount of your yellow and treacherous shit. Um... Yeah, not a letter that would 
intimidate me necessarily, but <laughs> a fine historical <laughs> artifact, certainly. You know, I'll be honest with you. Mailer is a writer who um, I have not read a lot of because what I have read didn't do much for me. Uh, uh, the same. Uh, yeah. Amazing sentences, you know. Yeah. But sometimes. Um he he always adds in armies of the night. I think he describes him as sort of being too much in love with his voice, like a soprano. There's always yeah. two words too many. Like all yeah, these yeah. greats. I remember Roy Scranton sent me a sentence once, or somebody sent me a sentence once, where um, it was something about the Pentagon being like shaped like the the nozzle of an aerosol can. It was some great image that he then added two descriptors too many to yeah. and it the whole thing collapsed under the weight of the kind of ornamentation does plato's apology count as a manifesto no <laughs> it doesn't plato's apology is not written uh, first of all it's a defense in a formal sense why doesn't it count as a manifesto because i would say if you're looking for an ancient greek work like the ethics mm. Or poetics would sure. be closer to a manifesto, though even those are not manifestos because they are enunciating what Aristotle believes to be natural laws rather than declaring the sort of supremacy of human volition. The key thing about a manifesto, in my opinion, is or one of the key things about a manifesto is the idea of uh you know it's human volition having supreme power and authority but the poetics or the ethics are about revealing natural law which is not you know the plato's apology is something else but closer to uh natural law, i would say i mean plato i mean it it depends on which which one you're going for, but he's, you know, he's the philosopher as an artist. I mean, like some of those would work as a work of art, yeah. right? Um, which is, you know, one of the things that I like about him. If you could pick one 20th century American writer to be on your show, who would it be? All right. Well, that's one of those questions you can never give one to, but let me think. Ralph Ellison. No. Yeah. Cause I have so many questions to ask Ellison and I feel like, his life ended with all of these unanswered questions, and I, I would like to be able to um, put some of them to him. Philip K. Dick. Um, Philip K. Dick, Ralph Ellison, uh, maybe Flannery O'Connor? Yeah, O'Connor would be – I mean I think O'Connor would be fun, you know? Right. Like I mean part of this is that – For me, the value of the podcast is is just kind of like BSing with a friend about literature, right? right? So, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily want anybody on who you know we'd like pull up the seat and feel like it was like this sacred moment where we just sort of ask for the pearls of wisdom. You know, right. you just want to get into a a debate and a discussion with somebody rather than uh, so you know who would be a fun and lively conversation partner. I feel like O'Connor would be great. Yeah, I don't think Ellison would be fun and lively. No. <laughs> uh, Dick might be, though, depending on how hopped up on speed he was. <laughs> um, and uh, Tom Owlade? Yeah, Tom. What's up, Tom? 
Can you expand on any noteworthy similarities between Valerie Solanas' scum manifesto and the black radicalism of people like Amiri Baraka? What correspondence can be drawn between radical feminism and black power? That's a very smart question. Uh, here's one obvious similarity. Baraka was a, a playwright. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have two people, excuse me, involved in theater. These are not people who come to their political radical- radicalism from an activist background. They come to it from a artistic and specifically theatrical background. So, um, you know, that's one similarity, and and both of them begin in these. Uh, their mien is. Uh, you know, artistic ferment and sort of bohemian artistic ferment. Uh, beyond that, I think there's some, you know, there's some fairly obvious parallels between radical feminism and um, black nationalism to begin with. Um, you know, separatist impulses um, and a separatism that, in both cases, a separatism that implicitly requires the assent of the um, oppressive force. So this is where the kind of Fanon critique, I think, or Fanonist ideas through a certain lens become very key. The, you know, with, uh, with Solanus in particular, as we talked about at the time, you know, there's a kind of farcical quality to it, the, some of which is her own kind of over-the-top bombast, but some of which is how utterly uh, how utterly like it doesn't have any bite because you, you don't believe it. It's not serious. There's no real threat there. Now, that's not – I'm not saying that's always the case with uh, black nationalist movements in the 60s. Some of them very obviously did have bite and, and meant what they were saying, but there is a – strain in black nationalism, American black nationalism, particularly the kind that emerges in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, more so than the earlier kind of Garveyite pan-Africanism. There's a strain in it that is deeply American in its antipathy to America and that, you know, at the time never fully comes to terms with that. Though some of the people involved in the movement, the Black Panthers, come to terms with it years later and have some interesting things to say about it. Um, But the, you know, so that's part of it, the separatist element, the kind of anti-bourgeois, anti-bourgeois radicalism is clearly there in both of them. Yeah, I'll just say one more thing, and and this is, uh, opens up a, a whole can of worms for sure, but there are interesting correspondences and parallels between radical feminism and black power and black nationalism. But there are also, you know, I think well-documented and much discussed, uh, well-documented and much discussed tensions and uh, conflicts between the two, particularly in terms of the role of women in role of women within black nationalist movements on the one hand, in a subordinate role, and then secondarily, a critique of radical feminism was that it was overwhelmingly middle class and white, uh, particularly the late 60s and early 70s uh, versions of it. Um, 
So, so that's part of it. And sometimes that becomes explicit. Here's a book that nobody talks about anymore and that you couldn't really talk about anymore. That's Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver, which is this seminal uh, text by a uh, radical who goes on to become uh, leader of the Black Panthers about his evolution towards radicalism through rape. Um, he's a rapist. Um, and, you know, it's – it is a very hard book to summarize particularly at the moment. But it makes luridly, pathologically explicit the intersections of masculinity, misogyny, uh, you know – Men, women, race, America, it's um, – yeah. So I, I, I don't see it being a book that people would want to talk about openly anymore. But it's uh, I mean, it's literally a book about a leader of the Black Panthers coming to his political consciousness through rape um, of both white and black women. Um, and – yeah. So this is from Dennis O'Toole. You dads should hold forth at least a little bit on parenting manifestos like Tiger Mother, Bringing Up Bebe, Kipling's If This Be the Verse. Uh, Art <laughs> could be any of the Absalom, Absalom type. Yeah. Uh, dad versus kid grudge matches. Uh, I forgot that he included This Be the Verse as a parenting <laughs> manifesto. I mean it That's is. It's brilliant. great. Yeah. Um, I just bought uh, – Larkin's it deepens collection. like a coastal shelf. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Um, what a line. Yeah. I mean the, for me on parenting, my sort of general sense is like, you know, um, like Shakespeare didn't have a Montessori school. You know, he turned out fine. Uh, that like, you know, kids need love, you know, social experiences um, and – that like a sort of intense uh, sort of instrumental effort to raise the perfect child is is probably insane. Yeah, you have no idea whether Shakespeare turned out fine. <laughs> I, I should point out, but uh, <laughs> that's funny. He might have been a total jerk. Yeah, but yeah, I sort of agree with that. But I also think you know it depends on if it helps you, if it works for you. Yeah, I I think that the kind of science of parenting is. Ridiculous, but um, I read Bringing Up Bebe. Um, my wife read a bunch of books, and that was the one she said was the best, and she said it was well-written. And I found that to be totally the case. I really enjoyed that book. I did not expect to, but I thought it was a smart, sort of sensitive memoir about raising a kid, this American woman in France, and sort of the, you know, the the premise of it doesn't make it sound appealing. In fact, it makes it sound insufferable, but it's very good. And I would be, I would be interested in doing something like that. I would want to bring in something from the animal kingdom as well, probably, you know, um, <laughs> some sort of primate, uh, primate parenting study, something like that. But I have funny feelings about Larkin. Maybe we should do Larkin and um, – I, I just bought his sort of uh, sort of a collection of his nonfiction. Yeah. Because uh, he's 
many interesting thoughts, and and um, yeah, I would I, like I, to do some more. I, I got that was specifically with an idea. Of Even this be the verse, as brilliant as it is, as sort of perfect as it is. Um, you know what? Let me not say this now. We should do something. We should do something with Larkin at some point, though. Yeah. Okay. Um. Do you print shirts? I think that was a question in response to the really cool collage art thing that you did, Alex, for the Stuckist Manifesto. Right. Uh, no, we do not print shirts. No, anything cool visually. First of all, I didn't know we had an Instagram till like yeah. a month ago. So I don't have anything to do with this, but I like it. Uh, anything visually cool that comes out of this, Alex did. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the – well, I didn't do it. I just – we took – we stole the, the image as one of the – sort of the depression logo. era right. WPA poster. That's right. And a- yeah. anything you see that does not involve all still images taken of like Peter Falk and John Cassavetes are me. That's my <laughs> my thing. Uh that the still that we use that's still on the manifesto webpage is from my favorite film of all time, Mikey and Nikki. Um but the rest of it is Alex. Now we don't print shirts, but maybe we do something as part of the Patreon. I've, I feel hard pressed to say that I want people walking around with manifesto shirts, and um, though it would depend on how much they'd be willing to pay for them. I suppose <laughs> I could be convinced. Uh, I don't think that's happening, but maybe we could do poster art. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Something like that. We'll get back to you. Armbands. Oh, <laughs> was a joke. Okay. If you were, uh, this is from uh, Matt Bogner. If you were to create a crash course to get uninitiated listeners up to speed with the concepts discussed in the podcast, what would you recommend? In other words, what five books, lecture series, et cetera? Oh, interesting. To get that. So specifically to get them up to speed on what we're doing here. Interesting. Um, it's hard to say because it's so random and eclectic and, and partly by design. You yeah, know? but like, let's I mean, give it a shot. Yeah, well, uh, you know, because uh, I, I write mostly about military stuff. Right, and yeah. this podcast is not mostly about military stuff, right. though there are intersections, um, and that's also by design because it's sort of it's designed to be like just pulling in from wherever. Right, I wasn't familiar with the Stuckist before you told me about them, right. um, uh, and getting kind of cross currents in my work. I don't know. I mean, like, I think in general it's useful to get like to go through. You know, I love listening to like, um, you know, you can find like lecture courses. Uh, of like intellectual history, um, you know, that take you up to the modern era that'll sort of give you the kind of a feel for the landscape and then you can kind of be like, oh, that sounds interesting to me. I'll dive in more to that and, you know, that is is less interesting. Um, so, you know, like I like, you know, they're like great cor- great courses, courses that you can, you can do on intellectual history that um, are sort of uh, good roadmaps. Um, uh, you should read – pick a couple of books by Isaiah Berlin up on the Enlightenment, on the Romantics. Oh, his stuff on the Enlightenment is great. Yeah, and Berlin is very readable, very accessible. The, the historical Berlin is very readable and accessible. Some mm-hmm. of his more philosophical essays can get dense, but read some Berlin on the history of ideas. There's still nobody who's done it better. Read, um, pick up, and antho- find the anthology – uh, of Irving Howe's literary criticism that includes his essay on the idea of the modern. 
you can find the essay itself, the idea of the modern – I might be getting the title slightly off, but it's something like that. Uh, commentary Magazine has it for free in its archives. I don't believe it originally appeared in Commentary, but it's there. You can find it. But go find that collection of Irving House that has that. Um, maybe read Arthur Herman's uh, The Idea of Decline in Western Civilization. Read Flannery O'Connor, Everything That Rises Must Converge. Mm. Read uh, – read – um, Dostoevsky's O'Connor's nonfiction is great too. Yeah, yeah. Read um, Dostoevsky's uh, novella, The Double, because um, just not enough people do. <laughs> and, uh, You're just telling people to read things. Yeah, that are great. Yeah, yeah. Read uh, Conrad's Under Western Eyes. Um, Conrad, yeah. And read Albert Murray, The Omni Americans. Yeah, read that too. Also, I'd say like, you know, our our hope is that I don't, you know, I don't think you need to come to this with like some great backdrop in in anything because you know as I, you know i mentioned like i didn't know anything about the stuckists before i started <laughs> pontificating on them right um we're we're working these things out as we go and that's the whole point of the enterprise you know and it's it's you know I, I, there's a way in which you know when i read something like um you know, I was talking about how like the – for me, the art is the end point. So when I'm reading something by a philosopher, say, right, I'm very rarely interested in in understanding the philosopher's argument for the sake of understanding the philosopher's argument, right? I'm just, I'm just looking for things that I can use, right, um, that I can apply to how I see the world and thus how I can write about the world and think about the world. And so – you know, books are composed out of other books. You know, like any any writer is 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 a Doctor Frankenstein rummaging through graveyards for spare parts, and so I don't think it's it. You know, I don't think I think it's valuable to sort of you know read or listen to things we're suggesting just because you know it's great. Yeah, <laughs> uh, expose you more stuff, but um, you know, just take. Take whatever – more than sort of saying here are the things that you need to read in order to you know, be conversant in what we're talking about. You know, like what interests you? You know, run that rabbit hole down. You know? uh, yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. OK. Did it all that. Um, do you have a vision for expanding the footprint of this effort beyond the podcast alone, e.g. workshops, speaking gigs, or modifying the subject matter to include new audiences and let me know? If you have any events coming up in Washington, D.C. Who asked that? Uh, this is Matt Bogner. Good question, Matt. Uh, we're figuring it out. We yeah. know that with the Patreon, we want to expand and do more things. Um, we have talked about doing speaking gigs or something like that, readings. Um, you know, maybe what we would do is something more – maybe we would do a live taping. Maybe we would do reading events, uh, you know, fill – has this new novel coming out that he, he spoke about, which is coming out when, Phil? October. In October. Um, so the main thing is go buy Phil's novel when it comes out. <laughs> and if you buy Phil's novel, then we'll talk about doing these other things. But, yeah, we would like to expand. Pre-order the novel. Pre-order the novel now. Yeah, I'm told that's – I don't even know if you can. Um, Set up a Google alert yeah. and pre-order the novel. Don't worry, Listen, I'll, hold on. I will let you know. Hold on, hold on. He'll let you know, but – I've read the novel, parts of the novel. 
No, no, I realize. I, the, <laughs> the I read something a while ago. <laughs> I've read parts of the novel, and it's brilliant. And there's not enough brilliant fiction. There's not enough brilliant writing, period. But uh, you're not going to want to miss this. So pre-order it now. Okay. Thank you, Jake. Alex is giving me a... What? That was terrible? No, how does... Back to expanding... Like, oh, it doesn't answer the question. Yeah, that, my answer is pre-order Phil's not. <laughs> you know, you don't get to pick the question and dictate the answer. <laughs> We're thinking it through. Um, yeah, we don't have any events coming up anywhere, but uh, I, this is we an might. event. We're in, we're in racket. Oh, yeah, maybe space. actually later this month. If you're in New York later this month, I spoke to a New York legend, Michael Daly, who might be interested in doing something as part of Alexandra Lynn's uh, fantastic art installation slash Canal Street theater exhibit slash bootleg Canal Street journalism history museum. An anecdotal ode to New York journalism. Don't bury the lead, an anecdotal ode to New York journalism. So we might mm-hmm. do something here later this three, month. 321 Canal Street. Yeah, that's it. What uh, are the hours, Alex? 11-ish to 7-ish, Monday through Saturday. All right. All right. So then we we just asked people for f- favorite moments in the podcast. Uh, uh, Carlos Lozado said, I like all the binary choices the podcast forces on listeners. Some are eternal, like Sartre or Camus, which is not really a choice. Right? No, no choice. I, I, I enjoyed the recent article mentioning Sartre's uh, support for pedophilia uh, in the New York Times. Um, uh, just sort of – Yet another mark against Sartre. Uh, and then others are entirely new to me, like Billy Childish or Damien Hirst, uh, um, which I uh, – one of my favorite moments from that particular podcast was uh, uh, Alex noting, no, the choices between da- Billy Childish and Tracy Emin right. and you realizing that you didn't quite have a response for that. Um, no, my uh, response was, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but, uh, no, but Carlos clearly gets it. <laughs> um, that's the thing. Look, the, the I'd binaries. Uh, Ni- Naipaul versus Wal- Walcott. Um, uh, Does he say that? Naipaul? No, no. I, that was, and also, uh, I would say uh, Virginia Woolf versus trivial personalities decomposing <laughs> an eternity of print. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, that that binary is, I think, in the spirit of the manifesto too. Right. right. It's like all about forcing stark choices. Um. Uh, Monk Eastman liked our, our, the futurists and, and their influence on Dadaism in that discussion, um, which was productive for me as well, thinking about the kind of cross-currents and intellectual fervor um, uh, around the time of the First World War. And then uh, another person just noted when I quoted Mikhail Tile saying – of how he plays chess. You must take your opponent into a deep, dark forest where two plus two equals five and the path leading out is only wide enough for one. Yeah, I love that line. I'm using that in something. I really love that line. Well, I feel like that also goes along with the binaries. Um, was That was from the Zamyatin, right? I mentioned that in the Zamyatin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. So. That would, I also found that very memorable. So. All right, let's give uh, maybe our own favorite moment, the first one that comes to mind, don't belabor it, and then... Um, we'll call this a day. I'm going to say I still really like the uh, second podcast we ever did. might still be my favorite in that. that scum? Scum and Cat Person yeah. because I think that 
it illustrates in a way that is most compelling to me the tension between manifestos and human needs and um, that human beings have uh, desires and needs that are not reducible to the demands of the manifesto and that when you and that this is not just about uh, political brutality. You know, it's not just that when you try and force people to abide by a manifesto, you wind up with uh, Nazism or Stalinist camps or whatever. Not needn't be anything so grand in its evil. Um, it's also about the way that when we try to force ourselves to abide by these, this sort of manifesto approach to being alive it it can be uh can force us to ignore what we know about ourselves or to force us to to treat meanly uh, our own more our own sort of honest desires for how we want to live something along those lines i would say i like it whenever you go off on a rant jake um, every episode. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like, um, I like the moment where we were discussing a review of Thomas Sheridan's Williams work and where you talked about the way in which this review that sort of reduced him to a political grouping, right? And use that to dismiss him the way that was sort of demeaning to ourselves and, and, um, and the reason that I liked that particular rant and the way that you we went off on it was uh, it, it relates to what I was saying earlier about politics and the ways that if you sort of make politics your priority, you um, – it it will actually sort of consume your politics, yeah, right? Yeah, right? And you know, one of the things that I thought was kind of fascinating about the reaction to his book in particular was – People would take the endpoint um, and then sort of dismiss the really kind of rich and interesting aspects of the work that could take you in various directions, even if you radically disagree with, with right. where he goes, right. right? And the reason that it can do that is because he's a good writer, right? Right. Um, and a thoughtful writer, right? And um, who's delving into to kind of fraught territory. And there's a way in which. You know, sometimes you'll see people in criticism, which should be aiding us in sort of teasing apart the kind of complexities of an experience, um, uh, insisting that we adopt a narrow way of consuming art that to me is antithetical to the purpose of art, which is closely related to the purpose of being a human being, right? Um and so I think that that sort of that that desire is something that is very present in our culture, um, and yeah, leads to bad work. Yeah, I could not. Uh, that's an unimprovable uh, way of putting it. And it reminds me to say thank you, thank you to all of you. Um, we never expect – we're getting – some of these episodes are getting more than 10,000 downloads, which is just an astoundingly large audience for a, a 
conversation about manifestos. It's, um, yeah, we have hundreds of thousands of downloads. I right. never thought we would get there. It's not what we expected. And it's been, you know, it's been nice. It's been uh, gratifying. And it's also been to come back to where we started and, you know, to end on a thank you to Alex and to Adam and uh, to my brother. To all our guests. To all our guests, everybody else who's helped to to bring this thing together. Come back to something that, uh, you know, so a, a good friend of Alex's who was also a friend of my brother's um, died. When did Michael die, Alex? July. In July. And um, he was the, the owner of uh, Brazenhead. Owner operator, owner doesn't do it justice. Um, he was the guy who ran the secret bookstore in New York, which was, you know, one of the one of the great institutions uh, in New York City. Michael Seidenberg, and part of what Alex and Jonathan Lethem were talking about. Jonathan was a very close friend of Michael's as well, who had worked for him at his original bookstore in Brooklyn, and what they were talking about was. And, you know, I, I won't say it as well as you did, but the conversation, you know, it was just that's what New York is at its best. And to me, that's what being alive and being a person is at its best. It's the conversation. And I remember there was this line from the obituary from Michael where Alex talked about waking up in the stacks of books and Michael's bookstore slash salon slash parlor slash um, occult meeting place of uh, decent souls. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you wake up in the stacks, you go to sleep in the conversation, you stay up all night in the conversation, you wake up in the stacks, and you create these places where that sort of thing is possible, where the conversation can happen, but it's... it's um, it's nice to be a part of the conversation and it's nice and I appreciate all of you who have joined us in the conversation because that's the only way it can happen. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. 